gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Good morning, and welcome to episode 455 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller, and today we want to talk about what unfortunately has become one of the biggest storylines of this season. It seems as if every day we hear news of a new pitcher who is experiencing some sort of elbow discomfort, the latest being Cliff Lee. We've discussed this on the show before, but we don't know what we're talking about, so we want to bring in someone who does, one of baseball's biggest experts in injury prevention and detection and treatment, the vice president of medical services and the head athletic trainer for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Stan Conti. Hey, Stan. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Good. So can you explain the, the distinction between those two titles for people who don't know? Because people, people know about athletic trainers and assistant athletic trainers. They might not know what a VP of medical services does because that's a relatively new position and one that maybe not every team has. Yeah, well, I think uh, we're still trying to figure it out. We sort of make up titles as we go along, as a lot of companies do. But um, um, my background is I have my doctorate in physical therapy uh, from uh, Boston University. Um, I've been a physical therapist for uh, a lot of years. Um, sports medicine injuries and work with the Giants. And I'm also the head athletic trainer, which uh, I'm an athletic, a certified athletic trainer as well. Um, my job is kind of multifaceted in the fact that uh, I work with a major league team. My job is uh, treatment and rehabilitation with a major league team. And, you know, covering the game and when somebody goes down, I have to go out there and see what's going on. But uh, we also do a lot of stuff behind in treatment. The vice president title is one... Um, it kind of reflects some of the administrative stuff that I do as far as research uh, and uh, other activities to try to figure out where to put our resources on the medical side to keep players on the field um, and uh, how to rehabilitate them. Now, what most people don't understand is that there's a 25-man major league team, but there's about 220 minor league players that are uh, they're running around the country that uh, are a part of the Dodger organization that uh, I also keep track of um, through our uh, physical therapists and athletic trainers in the minor leagues. So um, every night, uh, last night when we got back at, at 2 o'clock in the morning after the game, uh, I'm reading, reading minor league uh, injury reports and seeing what we're doing with the minor leagues as well. So it sort of reflects uh, a bigger than running on the field and taping an ankle uh, in between innings. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of uh, that's the best way I can explain it, I guess. And a lot of what you do and what people in similar positions with other teams, the Astros and other teams have hired medical analysts or coordinators. A lot of of the work that you do has been made possible, as I understand it, by improved record keeping, right? This is an area in which baseball as a whole has really taken large steps in the last few years. Yeah, uh, in 2010, um, prior to 2010, it really wasn't an injury tracking system. and Major League Baseball stepped in in 2010 and really helped us develop a uh, electro, uh, electronic medical record system in the EMR um, that has improved every year. And uh, part of that is record keeping. 
so that players that go from team to team uh, have the same medical records and they're not sort of transferred uh, through files and, and, and that type of thing. But also what it really is and what I was most interested in in EMR is it tracks uh, the history of injuries, and therefore we have some analytics to go back on and be able to look at trends that are going on instead of guesstimating. Uh, we've used the disabled list, and I'm a big proponent of the disabled list uh, up to 2010 because that's all we had as far as records to look at trends of injuries. Uh, but now we're getting more sophisticated, uh, but like with any uh, database, uh, you need years and years and years of databases to really look at uh, overall trends. And we're now in our fourth year of this, and we're starting to extract some really good data, which is helping us look at, one, where the problem is, two, how we can have an intervention of some kind and see if that intervention reduces the injury. So uh, baseball is definitely coming into the 21st century. MLB has put a lot of time, energy, and and money behind this, and uh, I think it's going to start paying off soon. But like with any database in its infancy, uh, it has to grow. So to pivot to pitcher injuries, because this is such a recent innovation, do we even have enough information to say, to answer a question as simple as are pitchers getting hurt more often now or less now? Because people will express opinions of guys are getting babied now, they're they're getting hurt more than they used to in the past. Other people will say, no, there are all sorts of career-ending injuries. Pitchers used to get hurt much more. But we don't really have the, the numbers to answer that question, do we? Do, do you have a sense of what the answer to that question is? Yeah, I think you know, injuries are definitely going up in baseball. There's no question about that. Uh, the disabled list you know, has, has, has a pretty good historic record. Although the disabled list is not an uh, injury database, uh, it is a, really a roster management tool. So, but we can get a lot of things because of the long period of time it's been kept. We can look at trends. Um, and uh, injuries, especially since 2007, have increased, and they've increased not surprisingly uh, disproportional to the pitcher. Um, and, uh, you know, last year, for instance, we had fought over 500 placements of uh, players on the disabled list. Uh, more than half of those were pitchers. Of course, there are about half pitchers in baseball. Uh, but um, uh, 500 is a, a marker. It's only been achieved four times, and that's in three of the last five years as far as number of players on the disabled list. It accounted for over 29,000 DL days, which was a record last year, um, and accounted for $665 million in lost salaries to, due to players that were hurt, even if they were replaced by minimum salary players. So uh, I don't know if you followed all that, but that, that, uh, that actually acts up, up to a chunk of change, about a little over $1.2 billion per year that's lost to Major League Baseball because of injuries. So there's no question it is going up, um, and, but, of course, the, the real question is why is it going up, um, you know, is, and what are the different factors that go into that? That's sort of what a lot of us uh, in Major League Baseball and around the country are trying to figure out uh, from an analytic standpoint, um, and an objective standpoint as opposed to a knee-jerk reaction. I think you talked about a little bit about, you know, were were there injuries, there were no injuries before, there were injuries before, this is just a routine thing. And, you know, um, injury statistics were not kept in the 60s and 70s. So when you talk to pitchers in the 60s and 70s, they say, well, nobody ever got hurt. That's a little bit of, like, the older you get, the better you were. I mean, people did get hurt there. We just don't know how many to be able to compare. But, from, from the late 80s on, we do have 
some some interesting trends in there, and they're and they're not really great trends that we want to see. Uh, so uh, you alluded to the question, but w- the, uh, that is the question: Why is it going up, and what are the different factors that go into that? Because it it really does seem like sort of the great paradox in the sport at this time that the more you guys spend on this, the smarter you get. And the more valuable the players themselves are, um, the the more they get hurt. How can this be? Why is this? Well, uh, you know, I, you know, there are a lot of factors in this, and I, I think it's been talked about. When you look at the Tommy John situation, it's a nice microcosm of all the, the pitchers' injuries and some of the things that people uh, think might or might not be causing the uh, the increase. And you know, when you, and you know, we can just talk about some of those areas in general. Um, uh, you know, one of the big pushes and discussions uh, is the youth baseball uh, usage problem uh, in little league, high school, and even in college. And uh, what's happening to those pitchers who are pitching too much in, uh, at a younger age, and whether or not uh, by the time they get to the professional levels, they're damaged goods before they get here. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of talk about that. Uh, Dr. Jimmy Andrews. And a guy named Glenn Fleissig um, is, is put a lot of work into, into studying youth baseball and found out that these, these, these kids are being pushed so hard uh, to do two things, pitch a lot um, and pitch year-round, but also to throw as hard as they can. So um, that's one of the issues in, in, involved in this and whether or not we have to go back to the youth baseball and kind of fix that system so these kids are not wiped out by the time they get to the collegiate and professional levels. Um, I can buy that one pretty pretty good. I think it's it's really important to talk about that. I'm not sure how much that particular issue carries over to the professional level and the increase that we're seeing now. Uh, that's not a popular view, but uh, uh, but I, I think it has to be looked at. Probably the biggest thing uh, that's talked about right now is velocity, and um, especially with the Tommy John situation. Um, People talk all the time about throwing being an unnatural act. Well, from my perspective, it's a very natural act. Your body's actually designed to throw. Um, and I use the analogy of, of, of you know, the Neanderthal who first found the rock to, or to, to hit the bird and eat it. He didn't throw it underhand. He threw it overhand. And there's been some really good papers, um, uh, a dissertation by a Harvard uh, University student looked at this and showed that really our shoulder uh, and arm has developed in order to throw. But it's not designed to throw as hard as you can 120 times within two hours. And I think that's the difference. And um, uh, in regards to Tommy John um, and the ulnar collateral ligament, uh, the stress on the ulnar collateral ligament when a pitcher throws uh, is near failure almost every time when you look at the biomechanics of this thing. Um, so, uh, and velocity is mathematically related to the stress on the, on the ligament. So what happens is the harder you throw, the more stress you put on the ligament, the more stress you put on the ligament, you come closer to failure. And, um, so, uh, velocity is definitely part of the formula. So now the question is, you know, what, if a guy throws 99 miles an hour, do you tell him he has to throw 93 miles an hour? And that, that's a whole nother issue. So. Velocity definitely has a, a part in this. Uh, when you do talk to pitchers of another era, they didn't they threw hard, uh, but they didn't throw hard all the time. Um, and 
I think what you see in the major leagues uh, and in the minor leagues is that these guys are going out and throwing as hard as they can on every pitch. Even if that pitch is um, you know, a, a curveball or a slider, the velocity is decreased, but their arm speed is as much as they can get. And I think that's part of the issue in regards to why we're seeing more Tommy Johns right now. So the velocity is definitely a part of this. Thing. And then the a third part of this is mechanics of pitching. And then, boy, there's a lot of talk about mechanics, what's good mechanics, what's bad mechanics. Um, we, you know, and uh, uh, we're, there's been a lot of different biomechanical studies done out there that looks at how pitchers throw. You've got the inverted W, the infamous inverted W uh, mechanics, and does that cause a problem? We do know that um, certain type of mechanics um, uh, will put more stress on that ligament. And um, so the, the mechanics aspects are a big part of this, too. Um, you also have uh, the usage issue, and this comes into pitch counts. Now, um, I have not been able to find a study or do a study that has showed a direct correlation to increased pitch counts and increased injury. Intuitively, you think that uh, that the more a guy throws, the more chance he has to get hurt, um, but we really haven't been able to show that. Um, uh, you know, and the question on usage mostly is what happens when a pitcher gets tired in the late innings? Does he change his mechanics and then therefore put himself at risk? So that's kind of what, what goes along with that. So those are some of the big areas. Some of the other areas that we're, that uh, people are talking about is should the mound heights be changed? Is the, is the mound the culprit? Um, and should we lower the mound or should we raise the mound or should we change the slope of the mound? And um, you know, we've got a lot of studies going on right now about that. And um, I don't think Major League Baseball is going to change the height of the mound, but um, uh this kind of goes into mechanics uh, of what's going on. There's some studies that show that the, the mound really doesn't cause more biomechanical problems. Uh, there's a couple studies that show it does. So, um, you know, people have to look at that. But the fact is, at least at the professional level, there's always going to be a mound there that people are going to have to deal with. So Ben and I sometimes Ben and I sometimes talk on this show about the Peltzman effect, where people get um, riskier when they feel like they are more protected. And so when you talk about um, you know all these Tommy Johns, and you mentioned that the velocity, uh, the increased velocity, is it conceivable? Do you think at all that there are more Tommy John surgeries because there is Tommy John surgery that pitchers don't feel like it's a career wrecking thing anymore, and that they're uh, because medicine is so good, they they can throw harder, they can kind of engage in riskier behavior. And do you think it's conceivable that the injury rate is is always going to be stable, and that to some degree you're fighting a losing battle. That no matter what you do, players will uh, get riskier and adjust to play harder and to to do whatever they can uh, to win, even if it means you know the injury risk stays the same. Well, I think it's a great point, and uh, and it's an underlying thing that you can't put your finger on necessarily, but is. But I think it's very, very real uh, in a lot of different uh, areas. One, I think, um, if you're a high school pitcher and looking for a scholarship and you're throwing 78 to 80 miles an hour and getting everybody out, good luck. You're not going to get a scholarship. Uh, velocity is king in regards to moving up the ladder. And the players know that. That's what the coaches and the scouts are looking for. So if you've got a guy who throws 88 miles an hour, um, 
um, you know, in high school, um, that guy's the, the, the greatest pitcher in the world. And that is promoted. So that's one of the things. Um, uh, so, you know, to te- tell somebody's not, you know, just to get players out, hitters out, is not going to be good enough. It, the velocity does have a big factor in that. And then the idea, of course, as he's saying, is, well, it's okay because uh, if you blow out and you have a, a Tommy John surgery, you're going to be okay. Well, that's a little bit of a myth, too. And let, we can talk about that for a second, and that is, you know, basically, even at the professional level, I hear all the time from front office people and other people as well, you know, if he blows out his elbow, it's, you know, it's 100% successful. He comes back in 12 months, and he's probably throwing better than he was before, even throwing harder, okay? Well, uh, in that sentence, I, get, I, I, I lied about four times. One, it's not 100% successful. It is a very successful surgery. In the major leagues, it's about 75% successful. Uh, meaning the, the player comes back to the previous uh, level of competition. He's a major league pitcher. He comes back 75%. That's a very good, and some, some studies show up to 80%, but it's about 75 to 80%. Well, that means one in four don't ever come back. So it's not, it's not a slam dunk. Then this, this myth uh, that's uh, pushed out there that uh, they're throwing harder afterwards. Well, there's been several studies that have come out, including one that we did, that shows that velocity does not increase after Tommy John surgery. Now, sometimes a guy is hurt the year before he has Tommy John and his velocity goes down from its average, uh, and then he gets back to his average. But generally speaking, the velocity uh, after Tommy John corresponds uh, with the aging curve of velocity. In other words, as you get older, uh, every pitcher pitches a little bit uh, less velocity, and that goes along with it. So they don't throw harder. Occasionally, there's one or two, but on the average, it's about three-quarters of a mile per hour less. So there's a myth that kind of goes along with it. Now, performance-wise, um, uh, the studies have shown that the that performance does come back in a pitcher compared to his previous level of performance, but uh, it usually doesn't come back to the second year. And the, and, the, and the last issue is this idea, every time you see a guy who goes to Tony John, they always say in the news reports, and expected recovery is 12 to 18 months. Well, does anybody remember the 18 months? They only remember the 12. And you see this with, with Matt Harvey right now trying to come back in 10 months. This is a long process. The reason it's such a long process is that the healing of the graft of, the, of the Tommy John takes about a year to mature and get going. And I'll go back to what I said earlier in this show, is that you're at every time you throw, you're close to failure. So until that ligament after the surgery is completely mature, you're at some risk. And when we start pushing the envelope and trying to get people back sooner, we're putting them at an increased risk. And we're seeing a little bit of that with the second Tommy Johns, uh, you know, the uh, um, Midlands and, and, and Hudson's who have gone down within a year or two after their, their first Tommy John surgeries. So some of these myths are carried forward. Now, again, going on to your other thing is that um, when when a guy has elbow pain, uh, and we're seeing it a lot, you see, this guy's got forearm tightness. There's this rush to have a Tommy John surgery because it's a successful surgery. So nobody treats it conservatively. The, the standard of practice is to have the Tommy John surgery. So um, there is a little bit of rush to to get that done. 
Does that mean there's more people having Tommy John surgery because of that? That can be a factor. So when, when you talk about is it the, the success of the surgery itself that perpetuates the, the increased numbers, I think there's a, uh, a portion of that is that is true. I saw that you speak at the, the medical uh, analysis and injury prevention panel at the Sabre Analytics conference in March, and that was unfortunately many torn UCLs ago. But at the time, you, you said that uh, Tommy John rates had remained roughly constant, something like 18 to 20 per year, except for a spike in 2012. Is it safe to say that that what we're seeing now is the biggest spike yet, or are we just putting too much too much emphasis on what's happened recently and forgetting what happened before? Well, you know, baseball perspective is great about about analytics and, and statistics, I and mean, you guys are the, the the website that really started the whole thing. And and um, we know that one or two data points doesn't make the entire graph. Uh, so uh, we'd be crazy not to say we there's a sure trend upward, but um, when you look at this over over really the last uh, ten years, the, the to- number of Tommy Johns has been fairly consistent at an average about 16. Little fluctuations up and down, and then in 2012 we saw this huge spike of 35. These are major league pitchers now. These are not all pitchers, but just major league pitchers. And we saw 35. And when I saw that, I went, oh geez, what is this now? The question is, this, is this an anomalous year? Is this just an outlier? Is this just a weird year? Or is this the beginning of something? Well, the next year, in 2013, it dropped back to, down to 18. So me looking at the graph said, oh, good. It's a weird year. But now we're at 20. We'll be at 20 next week uh, at major leagues, and we're not even to June yet. Um, so... Now, if there's not another one that happens, I know we got Cliff Lee, we got a couple other people out there, but but if, let's say there's no more, and you can't assume that this is you know like clockwork every every month you have X number, but mm-hmm. statistically you you have to at least look at that possibility, and it looks like we're headed in in the region of, of 30 plus again this year. So now that 35 in 2012 is not an anomaly; it's the beginning of a trend. Mm-hmm. How far this goes and where it goes, you know, if you go out 10 more years, does this just look like a blip on the screen or is this the beginning? So I think, I think I've said this is that, you know, I don't know if this is an epidemic, but when I see clouds on the horizon, I'm going to grab an umbrella. So, I mean, I think we have to assume that this is going to keep going and study this more and more to see if we can put the brakes on it. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned uh, at the conference the, the concept of the stressful inning. And as you just told us, it, it's been tough to establish any correlation between pitch counts, raw pitch counts and injury rates. But have you found anything in your various efforts to, to establish a connection between stressful innings or stressful pitch counts and injuries? Uh, well, no, uh, we're working on it. How's that? Um, you know, mm-hmm. one is just defining um, the... Um, uh, what you want to call a stressful inning. And initially we were calling stressful innings an inning that, you know, had 25 pitches in it plus. In other words, guy was throwing more pitches that particular inning. Um, but we've kind of, uh, at least I've kind of given up on that move to leveraged innings. Um, when you talk to pitchers, um, they seem to think that, that they, their arm works harder in, high leverage situations, bases loaded, nobody's out, 
as opposed to just throwing a, a routine pitch with nobody on, mm-hmm. even if velocities are the same, because um, velocities are pretty much the same. So we're starting to look at some of the sabermetric um, analytics in regards to leverage innings and trying to put that together, uh, but we're in the early stages of that, and um, uh, it, it makes a little bit more sense to me, but we haven't haven't got to a point yet that we can say that a guy who throws 100 pitches and uh, four of those innings are high-leverage innings has a higher risk of injury. We haven't been able to get to that point yet, but we, we definitely are working on that and doing that um, mm-hmm. to see if there's some correlation rather than just gross uh, uh, number of pitches. You know, and, we, and everybody talks about game pitches, 100 pitches, 110, 120 pitches. Uh, but you know, you also need to look at the spread. You know, 100 pitches in four innings is different than 100 pitches in seven innings. So there's that factor too. But again, I, I really, early in my career, I really thought pitch counts were the, the whole key to this whole thing, and that just has not panned out as far as a really statistical correlation mm-hmm. um, to injuries. Uh, it sure would have been nice, but then we just would have set pitch count limits and, and done this stuff, and, and that would that would right. end it all. Mm-hmm. So, but not going to be that easy. To the extent that you can tell us, where would you say the the industry is as far as identifying problems or impending problems in real time with technology like PitchFX or TrackMan? It, it's something that people at BP and at other sites have have done some work with, but it seems like at least in the public sphere, it's sort of a blunt instrument now with a lot of false positives, mm-hmm. and you can point to, you know, a guy suddenly losing velocity mid-start, but that doesn't always mean something. Is that, is that, has it reached the point that that's a reliable indicator of anything? No, uh, not yet. Um, I, I think you, you said it well. That is, uh, I mean, it looks, we got, we, we got big data. Uh, now we need to figure out what to do with it, I think. And uh, as far as real time, I think that's coming. The technologies are uh, improving. I mean, what we'd really love, we, we looked at pitch effects in regards to release points. I think a lot of people looked at that since you got X, Y, and Z coordinates. Uh, and um, uh, I thought I could really look at that because I'm a big believer in repeatable mechanics, uh, especially at the major league level. The key is to repeat them uh, and stay in your arm slot and, uh, and pitch effects because they have the statistics on that. Um, but, but mound height and where they put their foot on the rubber changes that a little bit. I think what we really want to go to at some point um, is uh, where we can get uh, real-time biomechanics during a game. Uh, and this would be some type of sensors that are put on the player as opposed to these big electrodes that they use in, in biomechanical analysis and be able to really look at the stresses as they occur. I don't know that the technology is that far off. I know people are working on that. So then you can basically see at a point where a guy fatigues and changes his mechanics and know when to replace that player. That would probably be the ultimate goal from a biomechanical standpoint. Um, and, uh, of course, if a guy is throwing a shutout in the sixth inning and he's got 85 pitches to go and tell the manager you have to take him out because his biomechanical analysis is sure he was come, going off a little bit, might be a tough sell on the bench, I can tell you that. So, mm-hmm. uh, But I think that's... That's where we're headed. And, and like all these things, um, and Pitch FX has been around since 2008. Uh, TrackMan is, is, is you know, more recent phenomenon. We like TrackMan. The Dodgers use TrackMan um, uh, because it, uh, it gives us a few other things that 
PSFX doesn't, especially extension. Um, and um, so I think these are these are blunt tools right now. Uh, but the more we use them, the more we get familiar with them, I think that, that the, the information will imp, uh, improve exponentially. I don't think we have to wait 20 years to see this. The other thing that, that has been great, I just was in a meeting yesterday, uh, day before yesterday at MLB here in New York, where we had really the top physicians, Dr. Jimmy Andrews was there, talking about this. And the fact that we've got so many people zeroed in on this, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are working on trying to find these answers. And uh, the medical people, for sure, don't think these are acceptable numbers and that we need to do something and we need to figure this out. So I think, I think you know, with, those, with that technology, with these statistics, um, and, um, and I think Sabermetrics as a group, as a general um, uh, entity, has helped a lot in doing these things. And people are look, thinking of things more analytically, uh, even on the medical side. So uh, that's all good. Mm-hmm. It's all promising. At the same time, we we got another guy going next week for a possible Tommy John. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, since you bring that up, I mean, who who is or who should be leading this initiative to to try to figure out what the problem is and what the solution is here? Because we've got you've got thirty teams who all it seems like have an incentive to. To, to keep some information to themselves, right? I mean, you talked about how many billions of dollars were lost by injured players last year. If one team could crack this code and keep all their pitchers healthy, I mean, that's a huge competitive advantage. And yet it seems like there's a lot of information sharing that goes on. And we don't, we don't tend to have a lot of team employees on our podcast because we find that for very good reasons, they're, they're not typically very forthcoming. But you, I've, I've found, you know, unless you're conducting a masterful misinformation campaign, you, you, you're very willing to share information about the studies that you've done and what they've shown. So, I mean, how do you balance that need to sort of have that obligation to your team, but also to just advance the industry-wide understanding of these issues? Well, I think uh, um, fundamentally, the smarter you are, the better you are. I try to get smarter. Uh, I think I'm smart enough to know that I'm not very smart. Uh, so um, what I end up doing is talking to a lot of different people. And I, and I think there is a lot of collaboration on the medical side in baseball. Uh, there, there is that so-called competitive advantage that you're looking for. Uh, but I know that if I'm in the mix and I'm at the table listening to people like Dr. Andrews and other people from other teams who may be smarter than me, uh, it may trigger something in my head that leads me into a way that will help the Dodgers. Uh, me being smarter is only going to help the Dodgers. And um, it's sort of like um, uh, I always get a kick out of the money ball thing. After 2002, for a while, people were saying, well, everybody's got the data, so everybody's equal. Well, nobody's equal. It's how you use the data, how you use the statistics, and how you implement that in. So the facts are, are, are necessary, but how you implement things are the key. So uh, for me, um, I think the more people involved in this and the more good thinkers that we have will help me decide where to put my emphasis for the Dodgers. So um, uh, I'm very much, in case any of our front office people are listening to this, I really care about the competitive advantage for the Dodgers. Uh, but I don't think talking about these things and sharing information 
is giving um, insight to the enemy, so to speak. I think um, uh, it's it's really helping us. But uh, one of the biggest problems baseball has is getting data and then changing things because of data. Baseball is an institution that resists change generally. And so on the medical side, some of that carries over. And it's, again, tough to, to for me to go up to Don, Don Mattingly in the middle of the game and saying, I think that he is fatiguing and his right arm is dropping. You need to take him out, even though he's throwing a shutout in the sixth inning. Uh, you know, how do you do that? And that's an extreme case, but, but some of this stuff is, is, you know, this is the way we've done it. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to continue doing it. Um, and I think we get more people in baseball and in the medical people who are trying to change some of that and saying, we have to step in here. These numbers are unacceptable. We have to do something, uh, and it's in the best interest of the teams and the players to do that. So that's, I think that's what we're, we're trying to do. So over the years, the sabermetrics uh, discovered a lot when data has been public for, for everybody to poke through and, and build on. But the trend is, of course, sort of for baseball to keep its data private and proprietary. As the league builds this database, is there any discussion or thought about making it all public so that there are more mm -hmm. eyes on it and more brains working on it? Uh, great question. Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, you're right. The Sabermetric Society has been unbelievable about sharing data. I mean, uh, almost all of our stuff. Uh, I do want to give credit to uh, baseballheatmap.com, which is where we get a lot of our data from um, on our teams in regards to Tommy John surgery. They've tracked it. I use baseball perspective and their injury uh, uh, data uh, almost daily, uh, and that's all public. Um, um, but there is there's still a tendency for teams to be close to the vest. Uh, in regards to a lot of this stuff, and, and uh, I don't know where the line is to totally, you know, free free public availability. There's no question the more minds you have working on it, the better are if you have a chance. And I think Major League Baseball is trying to incorporate outside of baseball people to come in and help with this problem. So uh, I don't know. That's a, probably a, sort of a weird, not a very good answer to your question, but. Uh, kind of where I see it. When we, you know, internet analysts try to say whether someone is making a good move by signing or extending or trading for a pitcher, I think we we mostly just kind of throw up our hands on the, the injury angle. And if a guy has had serious injuries before, of course, we know that's a red flag. But otherwise, we're, you know, we might sort of speculate so-and-so says his mechanics are a red flag or something. But it's it's really hard to come up with any kind of concrete risk factor. And you mentioned at the, the conference on the panel that that medical input has become a really important part of, of the discussion process before making a transaction, that it's it's almost like scouting now that you, you bring in biomechanics and biometrics and injury history and you, you try to make some recommendation based on the guy's injury past and what you think his future will be. How how confident can you be in a recommendation like that? How often is that the deciding factor that you say, well, we think he's he's going to break, so we're going to stay away? Well, I think um, uh, we put it, first of all, we put it in terms of risk and reward. Um, 
we try to do the medical risk aspects of this. And I, I am involved in, in pretty much every trade, every free agent signing. Uh, uh, our medical team works a lot on the amateur draft, looking at players in regards to what the risk is, as does every team do that. Um, and so the recommendation really has a lot to do with your organization and how much emphasis they put on that. In other words, um, if, uh, if a team puts a ton of uh, value on scouting for sabermetrics, they're going to listen more to the scout than the, the analytic uh, preparation. And so a lot has to do with how much that particular team uh, goes into medical. The problem with medical right now, and this is you know really where I started my research 15 or 20 years ago, is not knowing how to rate these risks. So when you see somebody who has a, pre- a previous injury or has some biometric problem as an arthritic hip or a history of back injury, where does that fit in? you say, do not sign this guy. And what I found over the years is that the guys who are at very high risk um, who do really well, and you say, this guy has no chance of staying healthy, and yet he stays healthy and is very productive. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, I think over the years what I've done is, um, you know, at some point you sort of throw darts at a dartboard uh, and hope you're right. Um, I've gotten closer to the dartboard uh, with with my research, but I don't know that anybody has that done there. We have several players on our team right now um, that I rated very high on the medical side who are doing very, very well. So, um, uh, and you're, you know, if, if I told the GM to stay away from this guy and this guy went back and pitched for another team and won 20 games, you know, uh, that's the, the issue. Now, what we try to stay away from, and I know this seems very common sense, but, it's a guy who has a very high risk and a very low reward. Those are the guys we actually try to stay away with, stay away from. But sometimes there's a player that a, a team likes, and you say, this guy cannot stay healthy. He's proved he can't stay healthy. And he's a lower-level utility player. Well, you're not going to get much reward out of that, but you're going to take big medical risk. So we try to stay away from those. So it's a combination of the things. Uh, uh, we had a player many years ago, uh, Hong Chi Kuo, uh, who a uh, left-handed reliever, if you remember him. Mm-hmm. He, he, he had just an unbelievable, terrible medical problems with his elbow and shoulder. But his upside was so great that right. we were willing to take the financial um, uh, chance to do this. And we, we signed him in one year, and I, I rated him very, very high. He had a really you know, well-publicly documented stuff. And he had, he was, he set a record on ERA for left-handed relievers uh, for the Dodgers that year. And um, so then what we ended up doing is signing him again. And what we really would like to have done is not sign him again because statistically we knew he was going to fall down eventually. So the risk went up the next year and he did in fact have a, have a problem. But So how you time this everything is the, the competitive advantage is not share, sharing the data doesn't give up a competitive advantage. What it does, though, is how you put that into your risk assessment and how it's integrated into the philosophy of the organization is really the key. And we're still at the infancy of that, uh, I think, throughout. Some teams do it better than others. Uh, this damn Tampa Bay and Cleveland really tick me off all the time. They seem to know what they're doing. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, very quickly, because you, you might be able to settle this first, we get a lot of questions. There are a lot of columns written about how maybe these injuries are attributable to decreased PED use in some, some oh. sense or increased testing. Oh. Is there anything to that? Does that physiologically make sense? Well, uh, yeah, I don't know which way to tell you on that. Um, um, uh, it's a very slippery slope uh, in regards to saying uh, PEDs uh, prevent injuries or cause injuries, um, you know, uh, and because we really don't know, um, even in the steroid era, how many guys were really on it or what they were on or what their dosages were, there's really no way to tell. Um, does PEDs affect performance and perfect, uh, affect health? There's no question. Uh, there's no question of that. Now, which way it goes, there's no way to study it to really tell that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let me give you my, my disclosure type of thing, or my disclaimer, I should say. I'm very much against PEDs and have been very much because I believe that baseball should be a competitive sport and it should be an even playing field. That's just a philosophy I have. So uh, I'm not very tolerant of the, the, the idea somehow of allowing some PEDs in or out I'm very much against that. But there's no question that um, when you see a baseball, one of the things that's great about baseball is that it's been the same really for 100 years, other than the DH and artificial turf. The game has been the same, 60 feet, 6 inches, 90 feet. And from an injury standpoint, we should see the same type of injuries all the time. We may see an increase or a decrease, but we should see the same ones. Um, And when we start to see more of one or the other, Something has changed. Now, what are the possibilities of that changing? Uh, well, one could be the, the ball's heavier or they've changed the distance. Well, that hasn't really happened. Um, you know, uh, are we teaching a different philosophy of biomechanics or that velocity is king in this possibility? Or has the player changed? You know, and I think we saw that in the story, steroid era with statistics. All of a sudden, we start seeing huge discussions statistics that were abnormal for the game of baseball. And what we found later on was that something had changed, and it was the player who changed. And um, we saw a subsequent decrease in statistics when that was taken away. So that shows a cause and effect relationship to the statistics. On the health standpoint, it's anybody's guess which way it helps or hurts and which one's help or hurt. Um, But uh, that said, I'm, I'm totally against all that stuff. Mm-hmm. All right. And last question, because we are taking away too much time that you could be using to protect a pitcher somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I'm hoping that we can end on a, a happier note, but but we'll see. You mentioned at the conference that I think over 50% of the, the time lost to injury in the majors is elbows and shoulders combined. Yes. And we've, mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about the elbow injuries. We haven't talked about the shoulders and and. Brandon McCarthy, who is someone with experience with shoulder injuries, was tweeting something recently about how it seemed to him like maybe there had been fewer of those or fewer serious shoulder injuries. Is it is that the case? Is is there good news to report on on that front at least? Yes, there is. Uh, shoulder shoulder loss time from shoulders has decreased. Um, the uh, the question is why. Has the force been transferred down to the elbow some way, and now we're seeing more elbows? Is there a cause and effect relationship with that? Uh, or one of the things that we have seen 
is a decrease in shoulder surgery. Um, and uh, one of the reasons that we, I think we've seen that, uh, in addition to there being less injuries, is that shoulder surgery does not have the success that Tommy John surgery has. Mm-hmm. So we tend to shy away from having sh- surgery. And surgery is, you know, you're changing the anatomy or fixing the anatomy, if you will. Um, and shoulder surgeries and pitchers have just not been very successful. So we're doing a little bit more conservative work. We're doing, you know, and I think there's a lot of uh, strength and conditioning that has gone over in the last five or six years that really has helped the shoulder and rotator cuff and scapular exercises. I think that that is paying off. Uh, but I also think we're avoiding some of the shoulder surgeries, and there definitely is good news on that level. I mean, uh, we've seen the lost time, we think about DL days, you know, go from not a high of 9,000 down to 4,000 4, uh, in a year. So we're definitely seeing a decrease. Um, but we still see the combination of shoulder-elbow being over 50% of the total amount of injuries, and that's not surprising. It's a throwing sport, so you, you expect those things to, to, to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you want yeah. to just be a? You want to be a full-time co-host? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, uh, I keep saying this over and over. A very smart person many years ago told me there are no simple solutions to complex problems. Uh, people want to simplify things, and they want one thing. And one of the biggest problems in this issue on medical is the number of potential variables. And you really do need to do a multivariate analysis, which is not very easy to do. And um, uh, and see which ones are really causing the problem. Um, and I think the sabermetric society in general has really done a good job. I'm a little put off at this point about somebody sitting at home and and writing an article that they don't follow up and find the facts on. There are certain things, and they're columnists, and they're things that just is my pet peeve where they say. This is what the problem is. This is what's going on. And they haven't, they haven't really looked at it. Mm-hmm. And they don't have the science behind that. Um, and that irritates me. We're, we're about to launch a huge thing, which you, will, you guys will get. Um, we, uh, there was an article written in 2012. Uh, they did a survey to coaches and, pit, and parents and to athletes about what their perception was of Tommy John surgery. And, and um, it caught my eye. It was in a medical journal, so nobody really knows about it. And this, and this is what's scary stuff for us. This is the Physician in Sports Medicine Journal? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm looking That's at it right now. Chris, 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 Chris Amon, the, the take-home thing that really struck, struck me more than anything else was 30% of coaches, 37% of parents, and 51% of high school athletes believe that Tommy John surgery should be done on players who don't have elbow problems to improve performance. Okay, in other words, if you're throwing 82 miles an hour, and, and Dr. Andrews talks about this constantly, parents come into him and say, listen, my kid's flying, he has no problems, he throws 82, he needs to throw 87, can we do the Tommy John so he can throw 87 to get the scholarship? This is insane. This is absolutely, this is, takes a little league father to a whole new level that somehow he can have a surgery on somebody who doesn't have a problem. So I started thinking about this and said, well, where did the coaches and parents and high school people get their opinions on this? Mm-hmm. And, well, the answer really is the media. So we're about, within about 10 days from now, we just actually got all the approvals and all the science behind it to launch this survey. Um, we're going to send out about 
we're going to send out an electronic survey to every possible media person who covers baseball in Canada. I think it's about 10,000 people. And we're going to send it out through the teams to everybody. Um, baseball Perspectives will get get one that we're going to send it to every email we have. Um, and we're going to ask a series of questions about Tommy John to get the idea of where the knowledge base is for the media on Tommy John surgery and see where that their opinions are. I think it's going to be very fascinating. And we've, we've kind of broken into different demographics, and I think there's going to be a, a difference in opinions on, on, on the questions that we ask uh, from sabermetric people versus frontline broadcasters to ex-pitchers who are now, now sportscasters. And uh, I'm very fascinated to see this. It's a, like a six- or seven-minute survey that you take electronically and, and uh, just ask you a bunch of uh, – there's 30 different questions, and most of them are demographics. But uh, to see kind of where we are with this thing from an opinion standpoint from the media. The media you guys have so much power to influence people's opinion. And it, it filters all the way down to the Little League father who, you know, uh, or the Little League mother who wants their kid to get to be, you know, Nolan Ryan. And there's only one Nolan Ryan. So we were smart to have you on now then, because I don't want to embarrass myself on this survey. No, I know. We no, want, no, no, I want to no. win this thing. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we thought about guys like you who will actually spend hours researching this before you answer it. It's not <laughs> right. that kind of survey. Um, and we, we, <laughs> it's not that kind of thing. But uh, it, it's not a right or wrong thing. It's just a thing about where you are in regards to this. And we've sent this out. I sent this out to about 10 different uh, reporters to do it. And one of the things, one of the comments we got back was, I thought I knew more. And mm-hmm. if we can educate the media on what the real truths are, uh, statistically, um, then they can put it whatever spin they need to put it in, but at least the facts are right. And, uh, uh, my perception of this is that the ex ball players, one of the questions that we have on the demographics is, are you or have you ever been a professional baseball player? Because, you know, uh, as you watch MLB Network, for instance, they got you know, nothing but ex-players on there. Mm-hmm. So I'm anxious to see how those guys do. See, but more of this whole thing is I, I think the kind of programs you guys put, uh, put on um, uh, that try to get some of the facts out, people can believe them or not believe them or look into it a little bit more um, or disregard them. But I think it's good to put that out mm-hmm. and, and not to just go for the, the sexy stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Although my wife thinks I'm sexy, I think probably my lectures are not as sexy. So. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. <laughs> sure, all of our listeners think we're sexy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all about the voice, right? Um, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> it's just all got right, weird. Well, listen, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we digress. Huh? <laughs> all right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. I wish I wish we could say that we had gotten to the the bottom of the problem here, but we've at least. No. At least define the problem a bit better for for people, and and it's been very informative. So thank you very much for all your time. All right, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, and please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to baseballreference.com, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. That is it for today. We will be back with a new show tomorrow.